So there's a movie 10 years in the making. 10 years that had been planned out came to a culmination in part one of a movie called Avengers Infinity War. Started in 2008 when Marvel, who had been known primarily as a comic book company, who had tried to put their stamp on other movies that were not very successful, had this grand vision from a guy named Kevin Feige that he was going to build a cinematic universe of Marvel films, and he started with Iron Man in 2008. And over 10 years and 18 movies, he introduced us to a number of characters and movies. Characters and heroes like Iron Man and Thor, Hulk and Captain America, the original Avengers. That added to that included Black Widow and Hawkeye and Star-Lord and Groot and Drax and Gamora and Doctor Strange and Black Panther and Ant-Man. And all these strange names that people didn't really know much about or and large in culture didn't know a whole lot about, became household names. And every movie had a villain along with the hero. And so not only did you have all those heroes, you also had Obadiah Stone and Ronan the Accuser and Ultron and the Grandmaster. And one of the, one of the movies had as its villain Ego the Planet, Red Skull and Loki and Killmonger and Vulture. But they were building the story with this man behind the scenes, not really a man, a titan named Thanos. Now, the end of the first Avenger movies, in the credits, they show this reel of this character that if you weren't familiar with the comics, you didn't really understand or know. But you could tell he wasn't good at all. And his goal over the entirety of the movie series was to collect series of powerful stones that it was said that when he got them all together, put them into a glove, he could snap his fingers and wipe out half the population of the known universe. Avengers Infinity War. The poster shows just the sheer magnitude of characters that are there. People from all kinds of Marvel history that have come together into one movie that would actually be part one of two in order to fight against the big bad that is Thanos. Now there are lots of things we could explore out of themes from this movie. Just the essence of good versus evil. The essence of what do you do when it looks like your life is not going to turn out as you intend for it to turn out. What happens when it seems that evil is winning. We could go in a lot of different directions. But I think it's interesting that this movie is asking a question that has been asked for hundreds, thousands of years. And that the movie has resonated with so many people. Currently, as of this weekend, this movie has moved well past $2 billion made worldwide. And by the time next weekend rolls around, and we're talking about another movie, next weekend it will have passed Star Wars The Force Awakens to be the third most popular grossing movie in history. And at the center of it is 
a question that is an old question, not a new question, not something people have just started asking. It's a question that people have been asking for a long time in a variety of ways around different kind of religious experiences and just life in general. And that question that it's asking is, are we there yet? It's not what you expected, is it? Anybody ever heard that question? Yeah, anybody ever heard it? We were, uh, by the way, our men, some of our men went to a conference this weekend. It was awesome, main event, Lifeway conference. And in that, a guy named Trip Lee, um, who is a, a rapper and a speaker, and great guy, was talking about the fact that when he was didn't have kids yet, he used to watch movies or see something, and this question would be asked on the movie, and people would, you know, it's always kind of funny, like, that's, <laughs> that's funny. He said, then I had kids, and I went on road trips, and they really asked that question, and it's not that funny. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Right? Like, you leave on a six-hour trip, and you're not even out of Nashville. Are we there yet, Dad? No, we're not. That's... Don't ask again, all right? But the question, are we there yet? What I mean by that, the there that I'm talking about is, there has been within people since really the beginning of time, but for sure from known history, both biblically and outside the Bible, this understanding or thought that this world is moving towards destruction or a cataclysmic event or some sort of ending that's going to reset everything. Whether it's movies and just in my history of a a meteor that's going to hit the earth and explode the earth. Or it's movies like Infinity War that talks about what happens if this um, maniacal tyrant gets control of the most powerful things in the universe and wipes out half the population. Are we there yet? Are we getting close? What does it look like? It's not a new question. In fact, on New Year's Eve, A.D. 999. Anybody around 999? Yeah, none of us are here, right? Nobody in the first service was either. It's crazy, all right? Pope Sylvester, that's not a joke about the first service. All right, never mind. Pope Sylvester II held a mass because he thought, as did most Christians of that day, that the world was going to end at midnight when it struck 1000 A.D. And so there's this saying is described. He said that there were literally people in Jerusalem that were standing in the place they thought Jesus was going to come back. That all across Europe, people had given away land. People had given away all their possessions. People had paid for people to have stuff. They had released all their animals. They had released all their slaves. They had given everything away. They had confessed to things they would have never confessed to. They admitted iniquities. They admitted sins. They told everybody what was going on. And they came to this moment convinced that at 999, when it struck midnight into the year 1000, everything was going to go away. And the story is told that at St. Peter's, Peter's Basilica, as the Pope is speaking, the clock that was there, that was chiming the time, momentarily stopped. And people literally died. And then it started again. And this is the description. After the awful moment that seemed like eternity suspended, the clock resumed its countdown. The Pope continued his sacred Latin phrases. Precisely at midnight, the bells atop the tower began to peal wildly. A song was sung and life moved on. 
Are we there yet? Edgar Wisenhunt in 1987 wrote a book called 88 Reasons the World Will End in 1988. When January 1st, 1989 came, he reworked his book to the 89 reasons the Lord will come in 1989. Some of you remember Y2K. How many of you remember Y2K, right? Computer systems all over the world were going to terminate. You've got to have your water and all your supplies down in the basement. You're not going to be able to get food or anything like that. How about the Mayan calendar? Y'all remember that? The Mayan calendar predicted the end of the world. Like it just seems like every year somebody's predicting the world's going to end. And somebody's going to be right someday. Well, maybe close. So this is what I want to talk about today. Are we there yet? What does it look like when we do? So here's how we're going to do that. I'm going to give you just, we're going to start with just some very basic questions. I'm going to give you quick answers to those questions. And then I want to look in detail at a question at the end of this that underlies a story, even like Avengers Infinity War, whether they realize it or not. So the first question is, will it end someday? Will the earth, as we know it, come to an end someday? And the answer to that is, yes. Next question is, okay, when? When's it going to happen? I got an answer for you, all right? When God decides. I don't mean that flippantly. I mean that realistically. God will decide. When he decides to come back, he will come back. He's got the date. He knows when it is. He's going to come back. How? How God decides, right? Like, I know I can read Revelation, I can go through all that, there's symbolism there. It's hard to understand symbolism from what is being literal there, trying to figure all that out. Here's what I know. In my life, I have been amillennialist, postmillennialist, premillennialist, premillennial dispensationalist. I've been them all. And I had a professor at one time told me he was just going to be a panmillennialist because it's all going to pan out in the end. Right? Some of you only know what millennialist stuff is. Don't worry about it. You don't, I wish I didn't sometimes, all right? Next question. So are we close? I hope so. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Like tomorrow would be fine with me. This afternoon's good too. I'd even give up some good homemade ice cream today if they come this, if he come this afternoon. Like I hope so. I think the signs of the times are there. I think we see things progressing towards the end of time. I think we're moving towards when God is going to bring back that he's going to come. Now, I mentioned how we don't know exactly what we do know is that when Jesus comes this time, he's not coming as a baby in a manger. He's coming as a conquering king, king of kings and lord of lords. He's going to appear out of the eastern sky. He's going to bring God's army with him, the saints of God that have gone before. And they're coming back to take the earth, to take over, to come and rescue those of us that are followers of his and defeat the enemy of God once and for all and punish him for all eternity. We know that's what's going to happen and I hope I hope we are close come quickly Lord Jesus here's what I can tell you we are closer now than we have ever been and we're closer now than we've ever been so they say then why the delay why is God delaying like here's the thing do I think we're close yes do you know who else thought they were close Peter Paul every serious Christian For the last almost 2,000 years, I thought they were close. So why the delay? Well, he gives us the answer to that in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter, he says, 
Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. Now, this is not for you to go out and to figure up exactly how many years has the Lord, has the earth been around. And that's a thousand years. That's one day. So six days. The point here is not that it's exactly a thousand years is one day. The point here to time to God is meaningless. He is outside of time. He is not constrained by time. He is not limited by time. That time is relative to him. That what feels like a thousand years for us is no time to him because he is literally outside of time. Now, we understand that concept in some ways because time is even relative for us. Like when you're doing something you really enjoy, we say that time flies. And we also got a saying about the fact that a watch pot never Boils. That when we're doing something we hate or dislike, it's amazing how long time can feel. The other day I was doing some high intensity interval training and one of the things was high knees. It was running with high knees and all I had to do it was 30 seconds. It was the longest 30 seconds of my life. Like, you know, where you run and you're really getting at it and you look down at the timer and you're like, man, that's got to be 30 seconds. And it says 16 seconds left. I'm like, What? My iPhone is broke. But you're doing something you love and it feels like no time has passed at all. God, think about this, is completely outside of time. Has no limits on him. So what they're saying is, we look at it and we think, God, it's been 2,000 years. When are you coming? God doesn't think it's been 2,000 years. He has a different reason. And here's the reason. He is not delaying his promise as some understand delay. But he is patient. Praise God for patience. Amen. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish. Because he desires for all people to come to know him. He's waiting for us to get the word out. That's what it says. It's patience with us, the church, with you, the church. At the conference that I mentioned, uh, one of the guys that they had there was one of the kids of the Green family that started Hobby Lobby. How many of you here enjoy Hobby Lobby, right? See, the, I see those hands, ladies. I see them. All right. He started Hobby Lobby, but they've also recently, recently built the Museum of the Bible. Washington, D.C., and they've got three sections, floors, I think, of that. He mocked about the, the history of it, kind of the veracity of it, how we can trust it to be true. He's got the narrative of it and then the impact of it. And as he was talking about the history of it, he says, we also look into the future. Now, listen to this. This is awesome to think about. He says there's a group of Bible translators that meet at the Dallas airport every year to talk about the current state of Bible translation into every language in the world. And that they're on track. Some of you guys that were there helped me because I didn't write down the date. But it's 2034. Is that right? 3334. They are convinced they have a plan to get the Bible translated into every language on the earth by 2033 or 2034. Now, here's what I want to tell you. All right. Now, some of us in this room, let's just be honest. We, we may not be around 2033 or 2034. Okay. But there are a lot of us in this room that will be here if the Lord tarries his coming. When every language on the earth will have a copy of God's word translated into their language. I didn't I heard a whispered amen. That's a big time amen. 
to every nation, tribe, and tongue will be represented in heaven. And here's the thing that I know about my God, is that He is patiently waiting so that everyone on this earth gets an opportunity to hear the gospel, but it's our responsibility to take it. He's patient. But here's the question I want to spend a little bit of time on. So what? What's next after that? What comes after the end of the world? What comes after it's over? What comes when Jesus returns, when the end happens? What's next? I'm glad you asked that question. Take your Bibles. You have them. I hope you have them with you. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Revelation is literally the last book of the Bible. Of the 66 books, it's the last one. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ to John the the disciple, the one that was loved by God. So as he is giving this to him, he writes down what is there. And when you get to Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, Jesus reveals to John what it's going to look like at the end, after it's over, when we're done, when this life is finished, whether that is by death now or when the inevitable conclusion when God returns is. If you've seen Infinity War, if you haven't by now, you're probably not that, you don't really care about it. But if you've seen it, you know that at the end of the movie, by the way, it's part one of two. That at the end of the movie, the big question is, now what's next? What happens now? What happened to? Well, Scripture's got an answer for us about that. Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1. And we're going to read straight through here, and then I'm going to come back and pick up five things that I see about our eternal destination. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And that's not, that's a picture we're not even going to get a chance to talk about much today, but man, it's a beautiful picture that God has been working on and building this new, brand new, redone city for us. Verse 3. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look! God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Chapter 21 gives us a brief description of what our home will look like after the fact, after this life, in eternity. And today I want to talk about that because there are a lot of people that have misconceptions about what heaven really is all about. They have this view that they're not really excited about. And they think about heaven and stuff. They're like, man, that didn't really get me excited. Like, it's an eternal choir practice where if we prance around in diapers, playing a harp and listening to Morgan Freeman read the dictionary all day. Man, that doesn't sound fun, does it? Like cute little babies with little Nerf darts, like throwing them out there. One Christian pastor admitted, whenever I think about heaven, sometimes it makes me depressed. It sounds like boring tedium. 
And if you ask people sometimes, and they're honest with you, they would say the same thing. In fact, there was a guy, I think, that played a concert last night at Nissan Stadium, and he's got a song that says, Everybody wants to go to heaven. Anybody know the rest of that part? But nobody wants to go right now. And the whole thought behind that is what? That what's happening here is more fun than what's going to happen in heaven. Do you get that sense that's in the song? Like, man, everybody wants to go to heaven. Let me just finish having fun here now. Because when I get done here, when I get there, it's not going to be fun. The Bible gives us a completely different picture about what heaven is like. But more than that, it gives us a picture of the contrast with what the alternative is in hell. And John concludes this book of Revelation with these ideas of what we can look forward to. And I want to give you five words for what heaven will be like. And the first one is, it will be a place of renewal. He says right at the beginning, it was a new heaven and a new earth. And there are two words in the Greek language for new. One means brand new, never been here before. The other one means remade. And the definition here is for one that's been remade. Heaven is not some new, colorless, ethereal realm, completely unlike anything we've ever seen before. It is a renewed, remade heaven and earth in its perfected state. Now, what is that going to be like? Well, we don't know exactly, but here's the first fruits of that, the the first understanding of the appetizers of that, the, the taste test of that is Jesus' resurrected body. You know what taste testing is, right? You know what appetizers are. In our house, Ava has become the official taste tester. When she feels or hears that something's going on in the kitchen cooking-wise, she'll just walk in and says, Daddy, y'all need somebody to taste test. She just wants a first bite to see what it's like, right? Well, and that's what Jesus' body is for us. And here's the thing that's really cool about Jesus. When he resurrected from the grave, you know that story that's kind of important to the entirety of Christianity, right? When he comes back from the grave, he has a body. People recognize him, but his body is upgraded, right? It's like if you took your old car in to be restored, refurbished, and they put like a souped-up engine in the thing. So Jesus comes back, and what's he do when he comes back? What kind of things does he do that we can't do right now? Like he just appears, right? He just appears in the middle of a room. He flies, right? He's sitting around with the disciples. They're getting ready, and what does it say? And they looked, and Jesus went, and they, the angel goes, Why are you looking up? Where he has ascended, he will descend. He has ability to float and fly. That's superhero stuff right there. Like, like real. You didn't know this, but in heaven, on the remade heaven, remade earth, you're gonna have superpowers. Y'all didn't, y'all didn't know that? Now, I don't think you get to pick, alright? But it's first fruits, but it's not just that. That's what, um, N.T. Wright says, he says that it's a first fruit. He says, one day God is going to do with the entire universe what he has already done with the resurrected Jesus. In other words, the new heaven and new earth is everything that we have loved about this place and about the heavens that we see above and about heaven in general, minus the curse of sin. Creation's beauties are heightened, its pleasures are strengthened, and its limitations are removed. I mean, think right now, what is your... You've been around the world... Or Greenbrier, or wherever you've been. I mean, I don't know how far you've gotten out of your lifestyle, all right? Maybe Springfield as far as you've gone, all right? 
What's the most beautiful, natural thing you've ever seen? I'm not talking about in nature. Some of you guys are going to try to win brownie points and save my wife. I mean like nature, natural. What's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? The Rocky Mountains. St. Lucia. Yellowstone National Park. Is that an amen or something else over there? Oh, that's an amen. Have you ever amen anything I've said? You're amen in Yellowstone. That's what I... Deborah, all right. Okay. Just listen. Just, just making sure. All right. It's all right. Yellowstone's better than me. I got that. All right. Now imagine this, all right? Those places you mentioned, for me, it is standing on the edge of the Pacific Ocean in Hawaii. All of those things we see now are part of a stained by sin world. Imagine what they look like in their perfected state. Man, I'm looking forward to a perfected ribeye. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord today? You're like, you're going to be killing cows out there? I don't know. God can take care of it, but I'm sure there's ribeye on the platter. All right. I mean, what's it going to be like to eat at a perfected Chick-fil-A? Because you know that Chick-fil-A is in heaven. It's the Christian chicken place. Right. Ice cream and cotton candy are good for you and broccoli will make you get fat. That's what's going to happen in heaven. It's a football stadium where the Titans win. I mean, it's going to be remarkable. Now, some of that last stuff may be speculative, all right? But the point is, the best parts of earth are going to be perfected. It's going to be unbelievably beautiful. It's going to be unbelievably majestic. It's going to take your breath away every moment of every day. The second thing is, not only is it a place of renewal, it's a place of reunion. It tells us that right here in verse 3. It says, the dwelling place of God will be with man, and they shall be his people, and God will be with them as their God. Heaven is where God and his people are reunited together. And it's also the place where we will be reunited with our loved ones and friends who have died in Jesus. One of God's purposes in salvation is to develop a people for himself, to bring them together and with a unity of love that never fades, where there's never heartache, where there's never goodbye, where we never have to say that, where we never have to worry about one another's motives, we never have to wonder where we stand with people, we never have to worry about what kind of agendas they're playing or what kind of things are going on or what games are happening. We don't have to worry about any of that because perfected relationships are there. Their church... Is where those that are loved ones in Jesus who have been taken by us in death will come to be reunited. Isaiah 49, 22, this beautiful, just an unbelievable picture. I will give this signal and they will carry your little sons back to you in their arms. They will bring your daughters on their shoulders. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for those, um, for those uh, military family reunion videos. You know what I'm talking about? Like at a baseball game or there's somebody's school and kids getting ready to perform and the dad walks in. He's been deployed for for 24 months or 10 months or 8 months and they haven't seen each other except through FaceTime. And the kid doesn't know he's coming and they just run to each other and they embrace and they fall and it just tears flow. And I'm like, there's dust all in the room. I'm watching it in like I'm just. Can you imagine. The picture there. That as you enter heaven, you've lost your parents or you've lost a child. 
running to meet each other and embracing in that moment. I mean, my guess is everybody in this room that has lived any significant amount of time has lost someone very, very dear to you. And it will be a reunion like nothing we've ever seen. But that, that, as unbelievable as that would be, pales in comparison with the reunion we will have with God himself. Who in Genesis chapter 1 is walking with them in the cool of the day, part of the fellowship with them, and sin breaks that. And in Revelation 21 and 22, it comes back together. His presence will be our constant light. And we will be so intimately connected to him that we will have his name written on our heads. Now I assume that's symbolic. But the point is, it is permanent and it is real. When the Bible was written, they didn't have tattoo removal artists. It was permanent. And our greatest joy will be reuniting, reuniting with him. Third R word is release. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain for the former things have passed away. No more pain literally means no more chronic illness, no more aching joints. No tears means no depression, no fear, no worry, no stress, no misunderstanding, no relational conflicts, no more emergency rooms, no more intensive care rooms, no more chemotherapy wards, no more pharmacies, no more children's hospitals, no more funeral homes, no more homicide departments or grief counselors or security guards and no more tax forms or DMVs. Amen. God's already saved us from the punishment of our sins. Jesus paid it all, all to MIO. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he has washed it white as snow. He is taking care of the punishment of our sin. But in the end, when we're there, when we get there, we will be saved from the power and the presence and the pain of sin. J.R. Tolkien, who is the writer of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, said that in the end, on that final day, God will make all the sad things on earth come untrue. Man, that's good. It's a place of release. It's also a place of reassignment. God's going to give us a job to do. Now, A lot of people have this image that we're going to be like bored in heaven, sitting around all day, strumming harps, firing off Nerf arrows in the sky. Just shooting the breeze on the front porch of heaven. It's like the, that's a good country song right there. Shooting the breeze on the front porch of heaven right there. Somebody write that for us. But in chapter 22, you don't have to turn there, but in chapter 22, verse 3, it says his servants will serve him. Servants will serve. We will work. We aren't bored. We are doing stuff. Work was created before the fall. What made work hard was the fall. It says that it made it part of the curse that we had to struggle. We had to toil. We had to worry about our work. What's going to happen in heaven is God's going to assign you a work that fits who you are perfectly. God created you. He knows you better than anything else, anybody else in the world. No Myers-Briggs or Enneagram. None of that's going to be able to know you better than God. And he's going to give you exactly the thing you were created to do for all eternity. And for some of you in this room, that's going to be the first time you're going to understand what your true purpose is. Now, for some of us in this room, we're going to have to get new jobs. Right? I said in the first service, not going to be any doctors in heaven. We had a couple of doctors get upset about that. What I mean is, they're not going to be any people practicing medicine in heaven. 
I never know how to say that properly. I, one time at a funeral, I said, not going to be any undertakers in heaven. And the undertaker got real mad at me. He said, I plan on being there someday. But get this. Listen, I'm going to probably have to find a new job. Because listen, you can listen to me. But when you get there, they're going to be somebody better to listen to. Like infinitely better. I'm going to have to find something to do. But here's what I, I don't. I don't know what it is, but God knows and he's preparing it for me. And it's going to be unbelievable. We won't be bored. And here's the last thing. And this one excites me and I don't even know what it's about. But it tells us in this passage in chapter 22, verse 5, they will reign forever and ever. You know what reign means? Rule. I'm going to be real honest. I don't know what I'm quite sure what this is ruling over. Some have said we rule over the angels. Some have said we rule over creation itself. C.S. Lewis thought it might be as kings and queens over other beings and other universes that God has created. Now that's out there. So I don't know. But I know that scripture says we're going to reign and I'm looking forward to it. We're going to be royalty in God's kingdom. At the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis's book where he kind of fleshed this out. I love how that... Last book ends, book seven. It says, for us, this is the end of all the stories of Narnia. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, that's the people in Narnia, it was only the beginning of the real story. This is us when we come to the end of life or the world ends. It says, all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Y'all don't look like that's good. That's good, all right? Our lives here are but the cover and the title page to our lives. And listen to this, he says. Now at last they were beginning chapter 1. When we get there is when our life really begins. Of the great story which no one on earth has read. Which goes on forever and in which every chapter is better than the one before it. Man, that's good stuff. Renewal, reunion, release, reassignment, and reign couple of thoughts before we move on to the alternative and then we're going to be done. If that's all true, here are a couple of things I want us to think about. First of all, quit worrying about your bucket list. Y'all know what a bucket list is, right? It's all the things you're going to do in life before you what? Before you die, before you kick the bucket, right? I don't know why kicking the bucket is dying, but whatever it is, that's what we do. Bucket lists are things we assume you want to do before you die because you think you'll never have a chance to do them if you don't do them before you die. But that's not true for Christians. Because we're going to get to do them better. You haven't seen the Grand Canyon before you die? Well, there's going to be waiting for you a better version of whatever that is in eternity. And guess how long you're going to have to go look at it? Eternity. Like all the time. FOMO is not a thing for Christians. When Jesus says that he's making all things new, what does that mean? It means all things. Mountains, stars, rivers, oceans, planets, animals, culture, arts, music, architecture. Maybe extreme sports. Maybe we can jump out of planes. I don't know. Man, my Bible doesn't have an asterisk right there that has a list of things that will not be included in the new world contract. And we know, we've talked about this, all means all Second thing is, quit worrying about getting old. Here's the truth. We're getting older. Amen? All right. We are, whether you want to amen it or not. It's happening. Some of you are really bothered by it. 
Man, you buying rodent fields out to try not to do that, all right? Beauty, I'm not, nothing bad against rodent and fields, all right? I'm just saying, you trying every cream you can get your hands on and shots and all that. And I'm not saying don't take care of yourself. What I'm saying is we're going to get older and it's okay. Our body's going to decline. I'm 42 now and I'm feeling it sometimes. Wake up in the morning sore and you didn't do anything the day before. I don't even know what was happening. I guess sleeping made me sore. I don't know. Here's the truth, though. The good thing is it don't matter how old you get on this earth, how frail your body gets on this earth. Your new body is going to be awesome. Because it's created by God and it's glorified. And then the third thing, and then we're going to talk about the alternative. Face forward. Don't look to the past. Don't think about back there. Think about what God has in store for us. Teach our kids the truth. Teach them that we have a heavenly father of endless goodness and endless creativity. Help them imagine what's it going to be like in heaven. What is that cotton candy going to taste like in heaven? What's that water slide going to be like in heaven? What are animals going to be like in heaven? And as much as I want to, that's where I'd like to end the message today. But that's not where John ends this part of chapter 21. You see, he gives us not only a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like, but he gives us a glimpse of the other place as well. And most people think that our default destination is heaven, but that's not what the Bible teaches. If you ask most people in the world, are they going to heaven? Almost unanimously, they say yes. Well, who do you think's going to hell? And they name the worst people that have ever lived, like five or six people. They deserve it. Everybody else is good enough. So they think we're going to heaven unless we just really mess it up. But that's not what Scripture says. Look at verse 8 of chapter 21. you still got your Bibles open there. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexual immorality, sorcerers, idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now I just want to be honest with you. When I think about these, I think about the words of Charles Spurgeon, that these are weighty things. That when I think about them, when I dwell on them, I'm more inclined to sit down and weep than to stand up and talk. But there are four things I want us to see about hell, admit that they are important, and I don't want to shortchange it at all. You realize Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven. The first thing that we see in this passage is hell is real. It's not a figment of anybody's imagination. It is not something that we have made up to make people scared and come into church. It is a real, eternal destination. The second thing we see in this passage is that hell is an eternal place of torment. The images here are awful. Fire, burning sulfur, eternal death. And I, there's some questions about whether, whether um, there's, there's symbolism and literal stuff in here. But here's what I know. Whatever is happening in this passage, even if it's symbolic, fire and burning sulfur and eternal death, those things are a terrible reality to which they point. In Revelation, the reality is always more terrible than the symbol. Whatever they're pointing to is unspeakably awful. People say, was it really eternal? Well, here's the truth. The same word that is used for eternal life is used for eternal death. Jonathan Edwards, an 18th century uh, American theologian, said, Imagine yourself cast into a fiery oven glowing with heat. And imagine your body was going to lie there for a a quarter of an hour. Full of fire inside and out, feeling every fiber of it the whole time. What horror would it feel to have the entrance of such a furnace? And how long would that 15 minutes seem to you? 
But wouldn't your heart sink if you knew you must bear it not for 15 minutes, but forever and ever? There will be no end. After millions of ages, your torment would be no nearer to an end than before, and that you should never, ever be rescued. But your torment in hell, Edward said, is immeasurably greater than this. Burning fire, sulfur. It was the worst thing they could imagine at that moment. The third thing that we see here is hell is a door that is locked from the inside. What do you mean by that? I mean that Revelation twenty-two eleven tells us that the evildoers still do evil. The filthy still will be filthy. The righteous will still do right and the holy will be holy. I don't understand this, but the scripture is teaching and the history of interpretation says that people in hell will still choose to be in hell because they are so convinced that they are right. And the last thing about hell is that it is not, heaven is not our default destination. Hell is. Over and over again, scripture reminds us that God created us for a perfect place. We messed that up with our sin. And God promised in that moment he would recreate it into its perfected state. But our default destination is not that. We have to have a place and a time when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ in order to be cleansed from the sin in our lives and allowed to end up in the place that God has prepared for us. The Avengers movie ends with severe consequences. I'm not going to spoil the ending for you about a movie with a guy trying to get all these stones into a glove so he could snap his finger and half the world, half the universe's population goes away. But it doesn't end well. I won't spoil it for you, but it doesn't end well. But there's another movie coming out next May. That's the second part of this movie. And here's my guess. I don't know. I haven't seen the script. For some reason, they haven't sent it to me yet. My guess is that has a happier ending. And the truth is, everything they depict on the movie screen, the reality of hell is worse than anything that anyone in Hollywood could imagine. But it doesn't have to be that way. John ends the entire book in Revelation twenty-two seventeen. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. John ends his book by saying, you don't have to go that direction. Jesus has made a way for you. He has paid it all. You have to receive it. Have you chosen to receive Jesus? Surrendering to him in repentance, accepting salvation in his name. Here's the truth. Without him, hell is our eternal destination. With him, we spend eternity in the presence of God, reunited with the people of God, restored and renewed, released from all sin. Doing what God has called us and made us to do for all eternity. And it will be better than you could imagine the best day on this place to be. The choice is yours. Let's pray together.